Deep in the farthest recesses of the most distant jungle lies a city. A city populated by the most mysterious, terrifying, and downright grotesque denizens ever seen by mortal eye. Here, in the darkened corners of this cavernous locale sits an ordinary, average brick building with an innocuous, ordinary, average, blinking neon sign which reads, On Air. It is here where each week, Seth Breedlove and Mark Matsky convene to discuss the greatest mysteries the world has ever known. Now, strap on your hiking boots, grab your trusty walking stick, and don't forget the bug spray as we begin our journey through Monsteropolis. All right, I'm going to intro us here. Um, this is Monsteropolis, a show about anomalies, legends, and monsters. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Seth Breedlove. I'm joined, as always, by my pal, Mark Matsky. Hello. How do you do? This week, we are joined by our pal, Cliff Berrickman. Perhaps you know him from the, uh, the television show Finding Bigfoot, or probably a bigger... Uh, step in his career, uh, a bigger moment, I would say, and it maybe even in his life was Momo, the Missouri, <laughs> the Missouri monster, the small town yeah. monsters, uh, classic cult classic. It's put me on the map, buddy. <laughs> the movie that, that really put Cliff on your radar. Uh, if you're listening oh. to this show. So, uh, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Clifford. Yeah, no, no, no problem, man. Anything for you guys. Everybody else, I say, I don't know. I'm so busy. Check back <laughs> next week. But like, you know, Breedlove steps up. Small town monsters. All right, count me in. I'm on it. <laughs> uh, so, like, what? What have you? Uh, I mean, not to get too personal, but like, what have you been doing for for fun now that now that have you been able to do any bigfooting at all out there? I don't know. I don't know what the rules are there. It's so. It, well, yeah, we're, we're all well. The museum shut. Yeah, yeah. We had to shut our doors for the North American Bigfoot Center in the b- middle of March. So, um, which which is, uh, you know, I, I, don't get me wrong. I love me a good long weekend. Yeah. Um, but the, the sad part about that is there's no money coming in. So even though, you know, I could go Bigfooting and stuff, I can't really afford it at this point, you know, um, because just, I mean, I was on TV, but I'm not rich. I mean, I'm just a regular guy with a lower middle class income at best. Right. Despite the, despite you know, conspiracy theorists on online, I'm not some government paid shill or whatever. You know, if I am a government paid shill, the pay sucks. You know, uh, or they don't have my account information because something's clearly wrong. So I haven't been getting to the woods so much or at all. Really, I live in the woods, but like beyond that, because I can't really afford the gas, even though gas is really cheap. So I'm just doing what everybody else is doing. Um, I moved my business to online, so I'm into work. You know, maybe two or three days a week fulfill the online orders, get that stuff in the mail, go home at my garden and tend the property, you know, because I've got a number of acres I have to take care of. And this seems like a good opportunity to take care of it. it it's I don't want to go into this, but at the same time, I, I want to at least broach the subject of conspiracy theorists who are furthering the idea that that anyone that believes Bigfoot isn't um, some sort of like interdimensional being is is a paid government shill. Um, <laughs> how does how are people that stupid? You know, it, it, it's, <laughs> I guess you got to work at it. 
Um, <laughs> you you got to really ignore logic and common sense, and you have to have very little idea about um, uh, critical thinking. I think <laughs> because like that whole thing going around now, like that's the whole massacre. The whole massacre massacre theory came about. You know, it's like. I don't know, it's like in the late 90s, early 2000s when suddenly it was cool to wear Izod shirts again. Yeah. Like all the, the things that we throw away, like come around again, you know, no matter what we're doing. And um, this this massacre thing from 10 years ago, you know, surfaced and reared its ugly head again. And I can't believe that people are taking it seriously because the whole premise that like it was, this is all from M&K staring at the films too long, I think, you know, yeah. but the, the film that he stared at wasn't even the Patterson Gimlin film. It was the Blue Creek Mountain footage and everybody knew it, but, but people still believe it. Even it, God, it was like, um, it's kind of like if I took a picture of the, uh, of the, um, of the Chicago skyline, you know, and I said, look, the empire state building is gone. Oh my God, the government came and took it away. Or, you know, somebody killed the empire state building and they buried it in the ground with tobacco. And you're saying, but that's not even the New York skyline. Like that, the basic premise fact doesn't seem to matter yeah. to the people, yeah. you know, cause that's not the Patterson Gimlin film, like half of it. And, and I don't know, it's, it's ridiculous, yeah. but it also shows um, one of the many serious faults in our own community. This oh, is yeah. our community. You know, we can't separate ourselves sure. from these people who believe anything that you throw at them, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it just kind of shows someone like myself, I consider myself an educator more than anything, I think. It, man, man I've, we've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, agreed. And I don't, like I said, I don't want to go into it because, I mean, th this is one of those things that I'll... People love drama in the Bigfoot world. Oh, it's yeah. one of the it's one of the defining characteristics of the community. So so people will be talking about this for a very long time, and um, I don't I didn't necessarily want to even broach the subject, but you mentioned it, so I just had to. Well, had yeah, to, and you know, I get along. I, I don't agree with M. K. Davis. I get along with him though. Mm -hmm. You know, I, and again, uh, that's one of the drums I I'm beating everywhere I go is that you don't have to get along with somebody to. Like enjoy their company, or you know, be civil to them, or anything like that. Wait, wait. Agreed. No, I said that. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. You don't have to agree with somebody to get you, along you, with somebody. You told me that <clears throat> very early on. That's because you're such a pain in the ass and hard to get along <laughs> with. I wanted to let you know that I like you despite of that. <laughs> no, you and I had a conversation years, like two years ago, two three years ago, at uh, in a in a in the the hotel bar in at CryptidCon. And I think it was the first time I really hung out with you. And we had that conversation because I was talking about someone I didn't agree with. And you pretty much shut me down. Like you, you stopped me in your very polite, kind way. You pretty much like stopped me from talking and then corrected me on like how I should be dealing with that. And I've like that stuck with me for a very long time. So I, I appreciate I've, I've always appreciated how diplomatic and also genuinely friendly you are with even people who you don't necessarily agree with. So. Oh, you probably caught me on a good day. I'm sure there are people who disagree with you about yeah. that. You smashed my head in, into a plate glass window five minutes later. Yeah. But, but, uh, <laughs> but leading up you to deserve. that, you were super nice. Yeah. Um, so I, what um, before, like prior to, to all this chaos breaking out, how was the museum doing? I mean, I, I, I'm, my wife and I have genuinely talked about just coming out there. So there's like road tripping out to see it. So I want to know how things are going out there. You know what? Um, it, it, it was a long struggle to get off the ground, and um, we, we got fully open in October. Mm -hmm. And when I say fully open, that means the gift store 
and the um, display halls. In fact, I'm at the museum right now. We have better internet here. Mm -hmm. I, I live in the woods, crappy internet, so we're doing video, so I came here. Um, but we've been fully open since October, and um, it's it. I was told to expect to lose money for two years, et cetera. And you know, and we're not. I'm not rolling in money or anything, but we're breaking even plus a little. And I, um, I even, um, I, I even got gutsy and took a small paycheck in 2020. Yeah. So to me, I, I'm, I'm thrilled. Yeah. I'm excited. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So I, I, I'm, and it's growing, and we have new ideas. And then the plague hit, so then I couldn't get my ideas off the ground. But um, word is spreading, and we had a lot of support from the community. And um, I'm, I'm really happy with the way things are going. It looks like this idea is crazy enough; it just might work. You and I have talked about this, <clears throat> and Mark, feel like Mark, just step on me here anytime you want to ask something, because otherwise I'll probably I, just keep going. But I figured he was just eye candy. <laughs> No. He's the good-looking one. He's, he's that's on my show. job. Yeah, I usually make I'll him smile. Take his shirt off halfway through the show. But no, um, I was yeah. I, like what? You know, Dave, uh, David Bakar and I had this conversation last last su summer at Mothman Festival, and we were talking about like I'm always curious like what his inspirations are when it comes to his museum. So like what? Like where did you take inspiration from? Where were you looking to when you were were sort of designing the museum? And, and like, was there anything specific you wanted to, to go more toward or steer clear of? Well, you know, um, the, the first and foremost, I took I took some inspiration from the other Bigfoot museums out there. Um, I've been going to Mike Ruggs Little Museum um, in Felton, California, outside Santa Cruz since like 2008, I think, maybe even earlier, 2006. I don't know. Somewhere in there. So I've seen how he does it. Um, uh, Dave Becerra, of course, has a great museum um, out in, down in a Cherry Log or Blue Ridge. I can't, kind of the same thing down there in Georgia. Yeah. Um, and I've been to his museum a number of times, and he has his own take on it. And I think there's, he has a, a lot of fantastic elements to it. Of course, Lauren Coleman's uh, museum up in Maine. I've been there a number of times as well, and dug through his archives. So I kind of, you know, uh, taken what I've what what I've liked from each of those other museums, as well as other museums too, like um, the Natural History Museum in New York or the, you know, MoMA or any of that stuff, you know. Um, I like museums in general. I'm that kind of nerd, you know. And so I was thinking, okay, well, I can see, I see how Dave does it. Dave, uh, he really tries to capture that um, expedition part of, uh, of, of the thing, you know. Uh, he, 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 he took a lot from Disney, for example, I've been. My brother works at Disneyland. I've been there. You know, I get it. Um, and I, I, there, I brought some of that to my museum. Not as much as Dave did, because that's more Dave's personality. And of course, with Lauren Coleman's museum, the International Cryptozoology Museum, his is really heavy on on like historic pieces. You know, like he has hair from the 1950s Yeti expeditions. Like, wow, that's amazing. Like the flags and stuff. He has a lot of history in his, partly because he's been doing it forever, basically. And I really love that as well. So what I've done is kind of taken my own personality with borrowing a little bit of that and this and Mike Rugg's stuff with a great library and nice personal touch. I've taken theirs and kind of combined it with my own classroom, essentially, because uh, I I was a professional educator before I was on Finding Bigfoot, you know, taught 10 year olds. So I said, well, I'm going to make the best fifth grade science experiment on Bigfoot that anyone's ever seen. And so I've taken that sort of a science nerd teaching feel and i'm doing my best to educate to really educate about it 
But it's not so much, hey, look at this artifact. This is cool. But it's like, hey, this is here. Look at this artifact. And this is what it means. And this gives you some context about where we are today in our study of Bigfoot in the grand scheme of things. So that's what I've tried to do. Where, where, where like, where, what's your ultimate goal with the, with the museum? Like, where do you see it going? Where do you want it to go? Well, um, I'm not a goal oriented person, um, honestly. Um, I'm, I'm like, I don't go for a walk to get somewhere. I go for a walk to enjoy it, you know, cause I was back home. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not about destination for me. Um, it, I, what I would like to do, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's an end game for me. I think that this is, uh, like a relationship, like an ongoing thing, you know? Um, so, but some of the ideas that I have is I, I want to pack the, I want to pack the walls. So there's not a square, not, not six inches square anywhere in the whole place that isn't, um, giving you some sort of Bigfoot information, you know. I also want to get a lot more historical artifacts in here. Um, I've got a couple in really interesting leads, uh, stuff that has never been dis- well only been displayed once or twice ever. Um, I've got some really amazing historical artifacts, kind of in line. You know, so I got. We'll see what I can get going right after the plague lifts. But um, I think I've got some really exciting stuff coming down the pipe here. I don't want to talk about it yet because it's not really out there. Yeah. Uh, I want to delve into other historic um, uh, collections too. You know, like I, I, I have control over the um, uh, Barbara Wasson collection, for example. Um, and Barbara was an underrated Bigfooter, essentially. She was in touch with a lot of people then. I have all these handwritten notes from Renee DeHinden and John Green, and, so, and no, no one's ever seen those. So I'd like to get the history out there because finding Bigfoot, um, you know, what was kind of for a lot of people, the beginning of their Bigfooting interests, you know, be, you know, and but that's not the beginning of Bigfoot. And, it, and it's a shame that, like, on one hand, I think it's great because finding Bigfoot kind of awoke people to hey, Sasquatches are out there. You can do this. This is fun. Um, but also it's kind of bad because that uh, many people in that generation get all their information from YouTube and they, they're not aware of Bob Titmus. They're not aware of Rene DeHinden. They're not aware of those people. Um, and that's a shame. So I'd like to get more contextual artifacts and displays in here to show whose shoulders we're standing upon. Can, you know, right? can you talk about Barbara? I've never heard of this person. Can you uh, can you elaborate on who she is or was? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Barbara Wasson, um, she wrote a book called Sasquatch Apparitions. Um and she was looking into Bigfoot probably from the very late 60s, early 70s. But um, the, she was a psychologist, so she uh, had a lot to offer as far as um, interviews, you know, witness interviews and things. But also she was a professional tracker for a little while. She would uh, be hired for, by the um, Forest Service um, in Oregon here. She lived down in Sisters. Uh, and she would do tracking classes for the Forest Service Rangers and, anybody, and like the lay people from the public and whatnot. She, so that's kind of her background. And she became very tight with uh, um, Renee DeHinden. Um, and she was in contact with a lot of the early investigators. And, uh, she, and again, she compiled a lot of data for her book. Her book uh, goes a little off, off the rails in a couple spots, in my opinion, um, talking more about the personalities of Bigfoot uh, as opposed to the animals. But, you know, I guess things don't change. That's where we still are today, right? Uh, people think, hey, let's talk about Bigfoot. And it always has to do with the people. You know? was, she, was she like mm-hmm. making observe, observations about the personalities or what? what we, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But also she was being fed a lot by Renee DeHinden. And okay. Renee, uh, 
you know, had a very, very strong, this is the way it is yeah. sort of attitude. Um, so I, I don't think that she gave some people the credit they deserve. And I think that other people got a little, perhaps a little bit too much credit. Um, and I think there's even a line in her book, if I remember right, about how Bob Gimlin has dreamy blue eyes. But, uh, <laughs> but he does. You know, I've seen him. <laughs> I've gazed into them as well. <laughs> we all have. Mark, did you uh, were you familiar yeah. with her? Yeah, yeah, I've the I'm familiar with the book. Okay, I'm an idiot. And um yeah. <laughs> But um with the with the museum cliff, do you have like is it set up with a permanent display and then a section that's that rotates through with um like seasonal sort of setups is that well, that's, kind of the that's idea the goal, but we're new enough that we we haven't had that luxury yet you know i mean mm. we, we've essentially opened the back in mid-october and we had to shut it down in march so mm-hmm. yeah we're, we're kind of a uh, that's the goal yeah but yeah. at this point at this point everything's permanent you know so mm-hmm. but I, I don't you know permanency perhaps isn't as permanent as the word implies right we're still yeah. building this thing out. We have plans cool. for this cave in the corner over here, and, and like we're still kind of building this thing out. Um, mm-hmm. We're not done yet. I'm not sure we'll ever be done, honestly. Yeah. Um, when when so so Mark and I made it up into um, the Olympic Peninsula the last time we were we were out in Washington. We got to hang out with with uh, Derek and Shane from the Olympic Project. One of the things that they talked about that I was super fascinated by. Uh, and I'm just curious to get your 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 take on this. Was the uh, the nest that they were finding up in the area, and and they had um, they had done these. They were supposed to send these DNA tests out for these, um, like some sort of testing. And basically, from what was put out there that I was aware of, was that essentially they were able to nail down that the, the DNA was from like Mark. Correct me on this, or someone correct me, but, but bears squirrel i mean like basically known animals and maybe some human dna in there as well is that is that where that ended up or was there more to that story no that, that's where it ended up um but the the thing uh, so now um because dr meldrum took those samples and yeah shit they, they they could be they could be contaminated absolutely a person took them right there were people standing around um but at the same time um a lot of samples sent to Dr. Disatel, and he's the guy that did these. Um, a lot of samples um, come back with as just straight human. But uh, Todd also commented one time that a lot of times he lets his students do the tests when they're calibrating machinery and things like that because it's expensive and that's a cheap way to get it done. Um, so Dr. Meldrum is, and I've wondered out loud with Jeff as well. Like he's, it's like, hey, well, if chimpanzees are 98.3 percent or whatever it is identical to us in our DNA. Um, and these things are perhaps paranthropists or something like that, somewhere on the human hominin line. Uh, see, I think they're paranthropists, and because Gigano, we don't know enough about Gigano yet, so I, I kind of put that on the side, you know. But we do know a lot about paranthropists, and these paranthropists are basically Sasquatches that are smaller, you know. And so, did these things get out of Africa, and did they get big? Maybe, maybe not. But if they are paranthropists, then we split off from paranthropists about half the distance back in time, as we did chimpanzees. Okay, we split off from chimpanzees about six to eight million years ago, but paranthropists about half that distance. So, again, I'm not a geneticist. So, I mean, I don't understand anything beyond what I took in college as far as biology goes. But um, the half the distance would imply a lot closer relationship to human DNA. It might be that these things are 99, 99 and a half percent identical to humans. Maybe we're just missing those particular strands. Maybe 
maybe I don't know. Maybe it was human contamination. I don't know. I know Todd. I think I'm sure he does good work. I don't know. Um, but maybe there's a mistake somewhere down the line. And the, these results have not been duplicated by other labs yet, which is what science would necessitate because science is all about reproducibility and results using the same data. Um, so I would say that it's still an open question at this point. I mean, because clearly Sasquatches aren't humans. You know, that whole that whole crowd of Bigfooters that say they're 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 human, they're Homo sapiens. They sure don't look human to me, man. Um, eight feet tall, covered in hair. Their hands are all weird and wonky, and the short little stubby fingers, and their foot moves different, and they have different indexes. And the, yeah, they're they're not humans. They're not Homo sapiens. So we wouldn't expect them to have identical DNA, but it should be really close. So maybe it's so close. We just don't see the difference yet. Do you do you find yourself when it comes to things like the nest? Do you, do you find yourself getting getting lost in in maybe just in your own personal time or whatever? Because I know this is probably non scientific, but but do you find yourself wondering like how they use would use something like the nests or how they would live with like what is your do you have an opinion on that or a thought on that? Like what is your line of thinking on that? I've got lots of thoughts, man, and I leave half of them honestly. Um, yeah, uh, like, I've got a lot of – see, so, so other stuff coming out of the nest site area, like um, I, I think that um, – see, there's this other nest you know, that, that – it, it may have been a repurposed bear den at one time because mm -hmm. uh, some bear hair was uh, taken out of there. But so was uh, foot, so were footprints and a handprint. You know what I mean? So I mean, look, those aren't bear prints. Those aren't bear hands. You know, bears don't have hands. But bear bear hair was taken out of the same area. So it makes me wonder, like, maybe they're repurposing bear dens for something, you know? Or maybe these are just, I don't think, I mean, maybe they're just overnight structures. I mean, there sure are a lot of them in the area. There's 20-something of them on that one ridge, if I remember right, 21 or 22 of them, I think. Um, maybe maybe they are overnight sleeping things. Maybe they're birthing areas. Maybe they're just areas uh, they're just hanging out in and chilling for a while. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know because uh, I, I know I've taken more reports of them sleeping, but the only one I can remember off the top of my head, it was given to me by a tribal police officer on the Yakima Reservation where uh, he, he came up over this, this ridge or whatever and he came up behind one. And by the time he got up on top of the ridge and could figure out what he, he thought was a bear or something, like, but by the time he figured out that, oh, my God, that, that's a Sasquatch, um, it was like 30 feet from him, 30 or 40 feet. Like, and it was, it was apparently sleeping, but just sitting upright. Like, like sit down on the carpet and, you know, don't cross your legs, but like sit on the carpet and just, just sit there. And it was like sleeping, you know. And then the, the guy, being a native gentleman, knows you know these things are real. And he came up on. He goes, oh, and he just kind of like walk backwards and got out of there. Goes, oh my god! Um, but yeah, that's the only one I can remember off the top of my head of one sleeping. That wasn't didn't build a nest or anything like that. So I don't know. Mark, you want to hop in? Yeah. Well, I think yeah. One thing I wanted to, before you got off here is just say I've been listening to Bigfoot and Beyond quite a bit. Oh. Thank and you. yeah, and just wanted to compliment you on that. You guys do a really good job in sort of long form interview and letting people just sort of state their case. And the one I was listening to with a lot of interest was Mark Merzel. Uh, I thought it was super cool. And the, the direction of your conversation was very much in talking about, you know, the, the value of history, kind of the stuff that you were alluding to with Renee DeHinden and sort of the you know, the, the 50s and 60s 
original Bigfoot culture yeah, as far as the search is concerned and the importance of preserving all of that. So I, all of that is to say that I, I really I dig the podcast. It's really good. And um, having spent some time with Mark uh, for on the trail of Bigfoot out on Mount St. Helens, it was just really cool to see him dig out his Ape Canyon file. There it is. Beautiful. But uh, Cliff's just, never just, seen them, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I would almost bet. It's still a plastic. It's still a plastic. He's preserving it for historical uh, value yeah, there. My archival uh, copy. Yeah, but, but it, I think what struck me was his passion for historical research and the, on the research end of it, because I guess I, I say that because I gel more towards his end of things, which is the research as opposed to being out in the field. And I like how the two can interlock. So I don't know. That's not really a question. But if there's, you know, the, the value of the historical research that people like uh, Mark Merzell does uh, if you could maybe just expand on that a little bit and sort of the direction you were going on the on your show and any other reflections on the show that you have, you know, what's it been like to be a podcast host uh, getting that thing going? Well, you know, if you um, as far as the research uh, question goes, um, it, you know, you spend enough time in the field and you get a few things, you have to go back and do the research in, in, in the library or in the lab or something like that. Or from the other way, if you're a lab rat, you know, and you're a scientist and you're doing this stuff and you're looking at specimens, et cetera, there comes a point when you got to go to the field. You can't really do just one and not the other. Or not. I think that uh, if, if you do it, I don't want to say you can't do it because I'm sure people can, but I don't, I don't think it's as effective. I think that you got You can't be a one-trick pony. You kind of have to do both sides of it. It's like the footprint casts, for example. You know, my garage is filled with these things. Um, and I, but I got to go to the woods to try to get more. You know, I got to follow up on these recent sightings. Maybe there's a cast there because when I get that cast back to the lab, uh, um, you know, the lab being my garage, basically, um, I got to pull out other footprints from the same area to see if we have the same individual recurring over and over and over again. Which is probably the case, almost always the case, because these things are very, very rare animals, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't have one without the other unless you want to lose some, lose some um, effectiveness to what you're doing. I think. Um, and as far as the podcast goes, I, I Bobo and I were getting tons of emails, um, like, "Oh, we want, we're going to see you guys on camera again," you know, and like, blah blah blah. Why don't you two do your own show and all this other stuff? And I, I talked to Bobo probably once a week or something, anyway. So and like one of those times, I was saying, "Well, why don't we like record this and put it out as a podcast?" Everybody and their mom has a podcast at this point, you know, and everybody seems to be writing letters to us. Yeah, well, okay, case in point. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we already have an audience, and they seem to want more of us. So um, let's let's do something about that. So uh, we hooked up. uh, We got our friend uh, Matt Pruitt. Um, one of the best Bigfooters I know by far, one of the smartest guys in Bigfoot land, in my opinion. Then um, he's also a good editor. He also edits the uh, North American Wood Ape Conservancy uh, podcast. Um, he, I think he's a voice on there, too. i got to say that's in the podcasts either. So, um, yeah. So, anyway, that's how that came about. And so so far, so good. Um, we've missed one week. So, you know, and I, and I think this coming weekend is the one-year anniversary of us being out, which mm. is kind of 
Yeah. And then uh, recently, uh, I found out that Wes from uh, Sasquatch Chronicles um, listens to our show and really enjoys it as well. Um, so we've been talking. I've talked to him on the phone. I didn't even know he lived over here. He lives in in Vancouver, Washington, on the other side of the river from me. So I didn't. So we got to go out and get some beers or something. So yeah. So I've been picking his brain about how to do a better podcast and all that other stuff too. He's been a great help. How how long have you been doing this? Like if you if you go back to the beginning, when did when did all this start? Bigfoot stuff? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've always been the weird little kid in the classroom who likes Bigfoot and everything, and then search of and all that jazz. Um, but really, my my I guess when I really started taking it seriously and uh, took my first steps into the deep end of the pool, so to speak, um, it was like in 1994. Uh, uh, I had stumbled across a book that really put laid out a lot of the evidence. And that was my first exposure to the evidence. You know, up until then, I was like, yeah, I hope they're real. They're cool. They're funny, like, like you, aliens and UFOs and all that other stuff, which, you know, entirely separate topics. And I also think they're real as well. But still, um, it was in 94 that I did my first field research, um, naively trying to look for the Patterson Gimlin film site uh, at, at Bluff Creek. Because I've always been camping. So I just started camping in places that had Bigfoot history. Um, and then the, on, on my first trip out, I found some really interesting footprints. I still don't know what they are, you know, and then tree breaks and all that sort of stuff, you know. So uh, in, in that time frame, I think we both know that, that this stuff doesn't really change. I mean, everything's kind of the same as it's always been. Is there anything you've seen dramatically change on, I guess, on the research end of things? Not... You know, not I'm not even necessarily talking about community. I'm talking about like the way people approach the research. Has anything changed to you that you see? Uh, there's been small uh, movement in a couple different forms, I suppose. I, I think the vocalizations thing, um, that that probably that knocks and vocalizations. Those became we became aware of those uh, probably in the early '90s. Or something like that. So right around the time that I was getting into it, I suppose, um, uh, people would go out and try to, you know, I, I guess a lot of that. I mean, really, historically speaking, um, you know, John Freitas was a big pioneer of that back in the early days, um, and a handful of others. But man, you want to go back even further. Roger Patterson was called lasting. Roger Patterson was doing that stuff. Um, in fact, there's a very famous recording of him yelling into a local church bell in Tampico or Yakima. Mm. And that, that recording is out there as a, as a Bigfoot vocalization, but it's not. It's Roger Patterson yelling into a church bell for the reverberation. He built a tower on, um, I think it was Jerry Merritt's property. He's a professional guitar player that lived near Roger. I think it was his property. Um, he built a, a big metal tower with a big bullhorn on top. He'd go out there and yell for Sasquatches back in the 60s. Um, but it, that kind of... And, of course, knocking was noted as far back as 1958 or 59. But to my knowledge, no one really did it to try to get a response from a Sasquatch until the 90s. And I think, I mean, I, I think Moneymaker is credited with that. I know he credits himself, but I, I can't find any exception. Well, you know, I mean, if, if someone says something, I'm going to try to figure out, is that true or not? Can I find another example? And I can't so far. Um, so I, I, I'm willing to credit Matt with um, the idea of making those sounds to try to get responses. So I think, and that all started happening at the very beginning of when I was Bigfooting, back in like the early 90s, essentially, 93, 94. Um, but other than that, I mean, the technology's become cheaper, so it's in more people's hands. Um, there's a whole, I think there's a lot more blob squatches now. Um, 
you know, in my idea about blob squatches, probably about three to five percent of them might show a Bigfoot, but it doesn't matter. Kind of, you know, if you got to circle it, it's not good enough. Is what it comes. To. Yeah. So no matter what it is, so that, that's so. I, I think other than that, we're still beating our heads in the wall in the, against the wall in the same sort of way. Uh, are we getting more Cliff, uh, Cliff? Are we getting more track finds than in the past, or is it about the same? Uh, like the same rate of reporting and discovery? Um, I don't know. I don't know because because before the internet, we didn't know what other people were finding. You mm. know what I mean? And mm-hmm. now we're finding tracks all the time, or you know, and a lot of them aren't tracks. Um, a lot of them are just mistaken, you know, divots in the ground or things that look like footprints. And, you know, it's like that biblical verse, you know, like a seek and ye shall find. I always mm-hmm. put it on the end, seek and ye shall find even if it's not there. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of people see these things, just like pareidolia. It's like blob squatches and there should be a word for the tracks in the ground too. Um, but tracks are being found, you know, they, they trickle in all the time. Um, they're just so hard to find. It's so hard to find and almost nobody thinks about documenting them, even a picture. But, you know, that's become more and more common, especially amongst the big footers. You know. Do you still get, like, calls about tracks and stuff like that? And if so, do you, do, you, do you still take reports and then go out and investigate them for yourself? Yeah, a lot of people send me stuff, um, which, which I find peculiar in a way because, like, I'm the, I mean, it's just my opinion, you know. Like, um, and and what, 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 what confuses me even more is when I give them my opinion and they don't like it, they get mad at me. Um, <laughs> It's like, why did you come to me then? Like, yeah. is, like, you know, and really, I know what it is. They they come to me for validation about what they believe. Um, and gosh, that's not me, man. Um, I, I'm not here to validate anybody. You know, I I I, I don't know. I'm I'm cant- cantankerous at that <laughs> lot. You know, so uh, um, but I don't know. I don't know. But I, I do like to I do like to see photographs and all that other stuff and tracks in the area. But as far as like going out, um, I don't chase sighting reports unless they're real fresh, you know, like maybe a week old or so, depending on what the weather's doing. Because really, a sighting report to me is is moderately interesting. Okay, cool, you saw one. Lots of people see one. Um, but the can you get some? Can you bring something back from the site? Like what what can you learn from it? Is the bottom line. You know, the vast majority, 95%, I, I, I'm guessing, of course, um, 95% of sighting reports are essentially a dot on a map at a certain time. And that's the only value in it. You know, oh, it ran across the road right in front of me. And and then and, and they might as well stop the story there. They won't. They go on for another 10 minutes about how that changed their life and all this other stuff. And like, I know what I saw and, you know, whatever else, all the, all this stuff. We've, if you're a Bigfoot investigator, you've heard them say that, witnesses. And... God bless them. It's this is a really interesting psychological study of what witnesses do, and I think there's a lot to be learned from psycho from psychologists in this field as well. And not that these people are crazy, but you know, when something traumatic and novel happens to someone, they react in certain ways, and I always find that kind of interesting. Um, But not nearly as interesting as the physical evidence and the stuff that comes out of it. But beyond a dot on the map, oh, a Sasquatch was seen here at this time. Did it do anything unusual? Oh, it just ran across the road. It was fast. Yeah, but did it do anything unusual? Did it did it clap? Did it beat its chest? Did it hit a tree with a stick? Did it peel skin off of a deer? Like what did it do? And if it and a lot of times nothing else. But that's where that's where sighting reports get interesting. Um, and you know, from I saw one in '86 and it was doing this. Well, 
when and where, and then interesting behaviors, unless the sighting report is fresh. Okay, if it's fresh, then of course, when and where is important and interesting behaviors, but then you got to get to the site as soon as possible because physical trace of the animal doesn't last very long if it's there at all. Uh, so uh, those are the situations where I'm out there. If I get something, and in 2020 so far, I've, I've been on three or four immediate responses. This happened this morning, I'm out there that night. This happened yesterday, I'm out there the next day. Um, three or four times so far in 2020, I've had the opportunity to go out. And um, the first one was from a, a um, th th this woman who saw one over by White Salmon. Um, this, the BFRO recently picked up the same report, but I was there the next day and the day after that looking for sign. Um, and then another one was a footprint uh, up in Gifford Pinchot National Forest on somebody's driveway in the morning. I went there that night. It had been raining. I, I saw three washed out footprints with no depth, but they were there. Um, so I have photographs of that. And then, uh, oh, then up on, in Colton in Oregon, I got to go out there um, the day after. But it took another four days for the witness to get back to me. And then he told me exactly where it was. And by then it had snowed and there was no chance for anything. Yeah. And then there, there's some other stuff on the Olympic Peninsula that I got out there two days later, but I got stuff there. Yeah, I, I cast uh, three footprints and three handprints. What, like what, what What? kind of stuff was going on up there? Because that's, that's the area. Mark and I both think are on the same page about this. I think we both desperately want to go back to that area because I got – I think I've told you the story, but Shane marched me up a mountain and then back down in like an hour, and I got horrible altitude sickness. So I really was only out there for like a matter of hours before I started yeah. vomiting and almost died in a, in a bathroom in a crummy hotel somewhere. Um, yeah. But like <laughs> what – I mean you have to practically be an Olympic athlete to tackle some of that stuff. It's yeah. serious terrain out there. Yeah. Well, yeah. <clears throat> I thought I was capable, but apparently – Apparently I'm a baby, but yeah, like what, what, what was going on up there and you know, what, what did you, what did you find? Well, you know, um, as far as what I found, um, I was called into a situation because there was, there were some prints of, well, there were a, there was a handprint there. And so I was called in and, uh, I, I obtained one of the handprints, uh, that day. Um, <laughs> uh, and then I, I, I came back a couple days later because my schedule allowed me and I cast another one, which is way messier. I, we found an area where the thing had been digging out underneath the log, um, and there was like a, a a hole underneath the log, and and there was a big dirt pile that had been like pushed up over here, you know, and there was a big partial handprint in the dirt pile. So I cast that. Um, it, it's kind of a little sloppy, but I I like it, you know. Uh, and uh, during that time, we found uh, three other footprints within 15 or 20 feet of that dirt pile as well. So I cast those. None of them turned out really well. Actually, this is one of those rare circumstances. Well, maybe not rare. Um, it's, but sometimes the photograph shows better detail than the cast does. And uh, the, all three of those prints are good examples of that. Um, the photograph, you go, oh, yeah, there it is. And like I was on the ground, you know, like real up close to it. And it's like, oh, yeah, look, there, right there, there there's, there's, there's toe print. You know, I was like right in there, but you couldn't, the cast doesn't really show that stuff. But uh, the area is great, and it keeps producing stuff, and uh, got my eye on it. And I was going to go up there again for like four or five days, um, but the plague hit, so I, I couldn't do it. Hmm. <laughs> plague screws everything up, you know. Who would I, I would have thought like the apocalypse would be a lot more fun than this? Yeah, this is not, this is not <laughs> what I wanted or expected. I, I, I expected 
I guess we're it, we're not far off from like Charlton Heston in Omega Man, though. You know, he's just kind of like chilling in his house, so it's 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 similar <laughs> to that. Mark, do you want to hop in before we start yeah, to wrap yeah. down? Sure. Well, speaking of movies, is there any chance? What are the odds of there being a, a Bigfoot road trip follow up? Oh okay. gosh, you know I have so much of that. I have a lot of that filmed, honestly, already. Really? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, uh, if we go to the the, the um, Glenn Thomas site, I have a, a long, lengthy interview with uh, John Crew, Jerry Crew's son, who uh, oh wow, who saw the footprints in the ground before his father cast them. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I um, I have a, a yeah. So I've got a lot of footage and stuff, but man, just life is is distracting, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm not a great editor either. So I mean, but you know, um, I'm, it's getting to the point now because this whole coronavirus nonsense, you know, uh, not that to say it's nonsense. There's obviously it's important, et cetera. It's changed everything, but um, it, it's awakened me to uh, the need to further diversify my income. You know, because uh, a museum doesn't make very much money, but I to augment that with my speaking engagements, which alone don't make very much money either. You know, you mm-hmm. do them, Seth, you, you see what we get paid. Yeah. Um, but like, OK, well, all that stuff shut down now. All of it is shut down. Can't no museum, no speaking engagements. Well, shoot, I got to diversify further. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Patreon accounts right now mm-hmm. uh, for the museum because I get a lot of emails of people saying, hey, we want to support your museum. What can we do? Where can we send donations? And, you know, donations are great. Don't get me wrong. I, who doesn't like free money? But there's a part of me that doesn't like free money. Uh, there's a part of me that says, well, you know, if you're going to give me five or 10 or 20 bucks or whatever, I'd like to give you something in return. And so Patreon might be the solution to that. Um, whereas I can offer um, a little bit more in-depth blog entries and things about my adventures out in Bigfoot land um, to, you know, to patrons who want to give five bucks a month. You know, maybe there's a, a 15 or $20 membership where you get access to some of these videos that I'm talking about. So Bigfoot Road Trip might actually come back in a different format mm-hmm. um, as opposed to, uh, you know, selling DVDs or something like that. You know, I'd probably call you guys and ask you how, how to monetize it best. But maybe uh, segments of it um, would end up on the Patreon or, um, you know, it's one of the streaming platforms or something. But I don't know. I don't yeah. know. My, my advice would amount to like a lot of a lot of dumb luck, like just bum, bumble your way through. You might. You might. <laughs> well, I've got I've got the dumb. Cup, I've got the luck. Cup, so it's, it's like if I just put them together. I'll be fine. <laughs> All right, so uh, weird question, but this just came to me. You've been doing this for a while. What's your what is your favorite memory in all in all this time? Like what, you know, like just as a person, what you, you have to have something you really fondly look back on. Oh, there's so much, man. There's so much. Uh, I mean, just one one of the most important things to me that have come out of all this is that, um, and I forget who said this to me. It'll come to me probably in a minute. But the great, one of the great things about Bigfoot, about the subject of Sas- Bigfooting, is that your idols can become your friends. You know, um, I remember uh, uh, like one of the uh, off the top of my head. So like obviously, like Dr. Meldrum is very influential upon me, right? Um, the cast thing, right? So I remember uh, visiting Jeff in his lab a few years ago, and Jeff had he had some work to do at his desk, you know, and his desk was in one corner of the lab. And he goes, "Well, I thought I'd, I thought I'd have to leave." He goes, "Well." Why don't you just look around through the drawers? And, and what? So, yeah, yeah, I've got I've got like an hour or so of work to do. I said, well, can I take pictures of the cast? He goes, oh yeah, yeah, sure, absolutely. Use them for whatever you want. I don't care. And I went like, 
so I got to like, like I was giggling like a schoolgirl, like running around, like, this like, oh my God, Jeff, are these, are oh, you're busy. I'm so sorry. And, um, and so that was an amazing couple hours spent in Dr. Meldrum's lab, just like, oh, the original Wrinklefoot cast. Oh my God, the original Paul Freeman knuckle prints, like all the original, the OG casts are there, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was phenomenal. Um, I, you know, seeing the Jerry crew cast, um, for the very first time. See, the cast, the, the crew cast was lost to time. It was like the Patterson England film site. Where no one knew exactly where it was until the Bluff Creek guys. Well, Rene DeHinden knew, and therefore I knew because I got it off Rene's map, et cetera. But, but like, it hadn't been verified until the Bluff Creek Project stepped up and did it. Well, the crew cast was the same way. The most important, arguably, the most important Bigfoot cast ever was lost. And, and I was trying to figure out where it was and blah, blah, blah. Finding Bigfoot turned it up. Finding Bigfoot uh, producers dug it up by finding Jerry Crew's sons, and they brought it out to Bluff Creek. So I got to walk through hmm. the waters of Bluff Creek with the Jerry Crew, with both of Jerry Crew's sons, John and Wade, behind me after checking out the original cast that no one had laid eyes upon. Meldrum didn't know where it was. No one knew where it was. So, so that was phenomenal to me. Um, I, I could just go on and on, man. I mean, I don't know how long you want to do this for, but that, <laughs> like, you know, I, uh, <clears throat> I got to uh, like meeting some of the people. I got to meet Keith Crabtree, the dude who was in the suit in the Boggy Creek movie. Yeah. Like I, I like I teared up when I met Keith Crabtree, you know, and I had to argue with the man to let me buy him dinner. You know, it's like, no, dude, you don't understand how important he's. Oh, don't don't worry about that, Cliff. You know, I got to meet that dude. The guy who was taking a dump when the hand came I've, through the window. I've got that, I've got that same. <clears throat> I've got that same lobby card hanging in my office. Exactly. I haven't put this on the wall. I've got a display in the back here about Bigfoot in the movies and stuff. So <laughs> I got to put it on there, and you know, just little things like that. Um, yeah, going to the Patterson Gimlin film site with Bill Munns. How about um, I, a couple years ago? I threw a party at my house because uh, various Bigfoot notary folks well they weren't they weren't like notary publics but like they're, they're uh, you know maybe they are i don't really know but like you know uh famous people in bigfoot you know and and you know because i don't think of myself as famous at all you know i really don't because i'm just some bigfoot nerd that got lucky and i got on tv but like at at my house you know yeah sure i i, I had you know Derek Randall's. I had a wool heater there. I had Dr. Bindernoggle was there. Dr. Meldrum was there. I, I, I mean, uh, uh, Bob Gimblin pitched a tent and slept in my backyard. Um, Bill Munns was at the same party. And I, and I Bill Munns and Bob Gim, Bill Munns brought his digital files and we put them on the TV and we got to watch the digital recreation of the Patterson Gimlin film happen. And so Bill was saying, so Bob, uh, was this where he goes? No, no, I was really more over here a little bit. And then like, they're going back and forth and I'm just like looking at all this in my house going, oh my God, what in the world is my life all about right now? So yeah. I'm so blessed. You know, I'm uh, the people I know and the things I've gotten to do and see, you know, for a Bigfoot nerd like myself, I mean, um, I'm, I'm, I'm a little scared, I think, at the sheer number of bucket items that I've been able to cross off my list. I think the end might be near. <laughs> I know. No. Uh, Mark, you want to hop in with one more before we wrap it up? Uh, I don't know. I, that's a pretty good place to end it, yeah. I think. Yeah. That's perfect, really. 
I, I I don't know if you're like me, Cliff. I'm I'm assuming you're you've you've done your fair share of travel, and and I I don't think I've I've traveled nearly as much as you. But I'm like the lockdown has me in a in a place where the second I'm gonna be like in one of those cartoons, like a like a like a Looney Tunes cartoon when someone's running and their feet are moving and someone's holding them and then they let go and then just <laughs> shoot up. I think that's gonna be me. When I can, when I can finally get out and travel and, and see the world again, so I'm with you. Like, like, uh, yeah, I want to get out and experience things again too. But I don't know. I I, don't, I hate to I hate to wrap up, but we do quick shows on Monsteropolis. So this 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 is this is over. We're gonna set you free, so you don't have to to talk to us anymore. And uh, and you can I don't hang get out. to talk. To you, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because um, yeah, all the things are canceled, when am I going to see you next time? Right? I mean, we've got. I mean, it, it, I I don't know because I mean, it, for one thing, everything's everything is in flux because of the the lockdown. But then you know the 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 virus. But I mean, I if this year's any indication, I'm doing way less events. I had I had hardly anything scheduled this year as is. Like I I only uh, had I think I only had four things scheduled for the entire year, and because my focus is becoming more. of and more about making the movies and, and figuring yeah. out other ways of distributing them. And to be honest with you, like I'm not, I don't, people don't want to hear me talk and I'm not a talker. I'm not you by, by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm just not a talker either. And I, I like making the movies with my friends and editing them and then showing them to, to people, you know, like that's my thing. So so yeah, I don't know when we're going to see each other again, but I, I, I do. I have something we're going to have to talk about once we end the live feed because I wanted to mention something to you that I can't do on 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 live. Yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I really want to thank you for for coming on with us and talking to us about about Bigfoot and the museum and stuff. Um, where can where can people learn more about you and the museum and and all the cool stuff you're doing? Well, I suppose any of the social media stuff. Um, you know, I've got uh, the big three, I guess, you know, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for Cliff Berkman. I have it for the North American Bigfoot Center, and I also have it for Bigfoot and Beyond. Um, and two out of three of those entities have websites. You know, I've got my website, although I really need to redo it. It's looking pretty old at this point. Um, and then, uh, of course, the museum has a website. And if you're listening, um, our doors are shut. You want to help the museum, buy something from us in our online store. We'd really appreciate it. It's what's paying rent and a portion of our utilities every month so we, i'd really appreciate it. uh and so far by the way the bigfoot community has just been coming out and being so supportive and so kind um i'm really really blown away at the love i've been like my wife and i've been receiving from the bigfoot community so thank you all very much I, i'm i'm one of you guys you know and, and we're all in this together man i'm, I'm not a, some celebrity i'm a bigfoot nerd that got lucky i'm part of the community so thank you so much for helping one of your own Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, Cliff. Uh, we're going to wrap the live feed. Stay on for a sec so I can chat chat with you about some other stuff. So, Thanks to the, the hundreds that tuned in tonight, by the way. Monsteropolis is proudly presented on Wadsworth Community Radio 97.1 FM or streaming live at wadsworthcommunityradio.com. It is proudly underwritten by Thurber's Jewelers on the Square in downtown Wadsworth.